Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. You know, during this war, I've been posting news updates, so my regular scheduled long-form episodes are a bit rarer, but I went through my backlog and remembered that uh, my last episode, just before the war started, was an interview with a uh, discussion, more like, with a Latvian-American journalist, Yuris Kaja, and we discussed about whether or not war will actually happen. Yuris was adamant that it would. I was actually a bit more skeptical. And then we talked about how it all went. Looking back at this and thinking that it's been almost a year, I thought it would be a nice time to call Yuris back and, well, try to make some sense of this mess and make some, I don't know, last year analysis conclusions about how everything's been going. So, hello, Yuris, and welcome back to the show. Yeah, hello. I'm glad you could have me back. And I'm glad we're still around a year later. No catastrophes have hit anything uh, or anybody, uh, except maybe Russia. Well, at least we haven't been nuked, so that's good. Yeah. So, a year has gone by. Uh, my forecast that a war would start came true. Now, I don't remember whether I said it would end quickly or not, but I, I do think I said that I think the Ukrainians would be a tough nut to crack, and, and it turned out to be so. Yeah, and in this, you turned out to be more accurate than many Western analysts. That was interesting because I was surprised about the whole amount of information that was miscalculated and misjudged by uh, a lot of experts who said that Kiev would fall in 96 hours and all this would just fall apart. I don't know about you, but I think that uh, big data when it comes to predicting things like Putin is not always that reliable. Well, I don't know how much people relied on big data or not, but I think people bought the story of the modernized, efficient, motivated uh, Russian army. And they did not know that even motivated, angry, amateur citizens would play a role in stopping or at least slowing and destroying the plans of the Russians to take Kiev in four days. When people saw tanks rolling down the road a few blocks away, they acted quickly. I just saw a video of apparently it's been taking a long time to get it out. But from the very early days of the war, where there's people in civilian clothes standing there throwing Molotov cocktails at a BMP and burning it. I don't know whether the crew was still inside or the crew had fled to see that they were in trouble, but there's a lot of stories that just ordinary Ukrainians and uh, home guard units literally snapped the spearhead of Russian soldiers coming in. Also, the, the delivery of uh, Stinger missiles from Latvia and a few number of other places played a significant role in defending the uh, Kiev airport from being immediately seized and used by the Russian military. They knocked down a few helicopters, and they rather badly mauled a few Russian special forces units that were landing there. And these were also not, you know, the top-notch Ukrainian troops. They were home, home guards who simply knew the territory and just decided this is where we take our stand, and we're not going to let this happen. Yeah, and that was interesting because um, when I was in Ukraine last time, in Mykolaiv region down there by Kherson. I was shown videos by the very people who participated in such actions. And, and uh, in one case, you, you could see like the local hunters club or something together with their friends and families who've been given like Molotovs, just literally ambushing those BMPs and trucks and everything. 
it's a weird, interesting scenario. I mean, it's been weirdly inspiring to see the Ukrainians resist. On the other hand, it's been truly horrific. Although um, the reaction to it has also been weird. Well, it's been horrific what the Russians are doing. I mean, leveling cities. This is like a combination of the uh, sort of the Nazi bombardment of Rotterdam with uh, World War One, where where we have you know, trench warfare and, and massive artillery barrages that really don't accomplish anything for at least for the Russian side, because the Russian side does not have precision artillery. The Ukrainians now have high bars. The Ukrainians are able to take out either major ammunition dumps or kill substantial troop concentrations as in the last few days. Yeah, but that's talking about high bars and, and all the equipment. We saw in the early war that everyone in the West was very reluctant to give Ukraine weaponry. Uh, a lot of arguments were um, that this would take so many months to train Ukrainians to use this new technology, and that probably wouldn't be worth it. And again, it was reasoned uh, that if Ukraine would fall easily, then this would be basically tech given to, to Russians. That turned out not to be the case. So now many people in Ukraine also look back at this and say, well, maybe we should have gotten everything earlier. It took a year, and Germany's still very wary of giving Ukrainians uh, the Leopard tanks. It's just a bit confusing about how how and why is this part uh, sort of delayed often. Well, first of all, I don't know how many functioning Leopard tanks the Germans have left, because there are a lot of stories about the, the sad state of the German military with you know things breaking down on maneuvers and everything. But okay, the whole idea, I mean... I don't see the logic of saying, well, okay, the Ukrainians are going to lose anyway, but then what would have happened after the Ukrainians lose? Then we would have a major ground war in Western Europe against NATO because they would move in and they would very surely try to move into the Baltic states, triggering Article 5. I agree with this, but um, I think personally I understood the fact that in at least some minds, some Western politicians' minds, they sort of see two Russias instead of one. They see the Russia, which is embuggled down in Ukraine, that's fighting there in this corrupt thing, and, and that is struggling to defeat Ukraine. And then they have this other Russia, of which they are afraid of, this big power that, that is threatening to Europe. And, and it is often times, at least how I've seen people, they don't realize the fact that if they weaken Russia now, it improves the security later, that this Russia that is corrupt and weakened and unmotivated is the one that is threatening them. So it's kind of weird that I have to push my Western audiences and people whom I speak to to understand that if Russia loses, it's, it's better for everyone, basically. Of course it's better for everyone. Russia has to lose. Russia has to uh, basically be pushed back into well, whatever its old borders are, and it has to uh, be convinced never, never to try this again. And unfortunately, you have to have a number of kind of scenarios that a lot of people in the West might find a little bit extreme. Uh, one would be uh, for uh, Ukraine to quietly acquire nuclear weapons and play the Israeli game. Well, this, by the way, is something that uh, Igor, Igor Girkin, the Strelkov guy, the war criminal dude, but yeah. I listened to his analysis, he claims that uh, that's the reason why Russia can't use tactical nukes themselves, because then the West will definitely give them nukes. Yeah, this the possible solutions to ensure permanent security in our region, sadly, are things that wouldn't be very... PR friendly for the West, so to speak. Well, what, what I meant by the Israeli game is that once this war ends, and if Russia does not radically change, and I don't doubt that will happen this century, uh, then uh, the Ukrainians simply say, do we have nuclear weapons? We don't, I don't know. Test us. Try it out. Try us. This is what Israel says, basically, too. Everybody sort of knows that they have them, you know, but... Uh, I, I do believe Russia will change, but not in the way that, you know, not in any reform way. I am even more firmly convinced that we're seeing the lost colonial empire about to split apart in Tatarstan's and Kuril's joining Japan, Chechnya and Caucasus getting independence, all that stuff. I don't believe it's going to stay in one piece. It's too far gone. And Well, yeah, that, that of course, there would be a number of spin-off effects of that. There would be a lot of refugees... And there would be probably a fairly interesting internal war. I mean, if the Russians decided to try to take the Kazakhs back or any of these other, we would, we would have a civil war in Russia and also Absolutely. a... Absolutely. I would not even exclude a class war in Russia and that finally, you know, the 
impoverished uh, countryside would decide to go to the metropoles of Russia, the big cities, and take what they have not had for the last 80 years, you know, so it was like electricity, toilets, you know, you see this behavior, I mean, you know, people stealing refrigerators and stuff in, in Ukraine. I mean, there are people even stealing chickens out of chicken coops. I mean, what's going on there? Or what was going on there at the beginning of the war, you know? The chaos, by the way. But uh, but yeah, well, sadly, there's either going to be a massive revolt or there's going to be civil unrest. I call it troubles in Russia. Even if by some miraculous wonder, Russia manages to stay completely nice and peaceful, at the end of the war, no matter what, and it will be, we have another civil war guaranteed. I mean, Belarus is, well, if Putin wins, then Lukashenko gets absorbed, and then there's there's a civil war by the guys who don't want to be absorbed in Russia. Putin loses, that as soon as that happens, there's a civil war to get rid of Lukashenko. It's like instantly. Belarus is looking at how this thing is going to turn out. And yeah, I give that 99.9% guarantee that there is going to be a huge mess in Belarus as soon as this this war ends. Well, uh, I think it's a deserved mess for Lukashenko. I think when Lukashenko has got a choice, uh, column A is Mussolini, column B is Ceausescu as to the way he wants to exit. Well, sadly, I think for both Putin and Lukashenko, exiting like Muammar Gaddafi is also very likely, you know. Well, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, Basically, that's not going to be, uh, you know, sitting there in a suit in The Hague, probably going to be hanging from a lamppost with uh, objects in, inserted into various body parts in Moscow. That's one, that's one outcome. It's all been weird, especially since um, Putin's turned to be this very paranoid person that, unlike Zelensky, who's like out there in the open all the time. And I was really impressed at the beginning of the war when Zelensky decided to stay in Kiev and all that. But Putin's been just sitting in his bunker and totally not acting like an actual leader. And people have noticed, and I, I'm just wondering why. And also, also surrounded by people who are misinforming him. I mean, there were New York Times articles about this, that there are these, these hardline syncopants surrounding him who do not tell him the reality of the fact that the, that the Russian army is losing that war, that the Russian army is taking incredibly major and senseless casualties. You know, you gather hundreds of people together, they all decide to call home, and guess what? You know, it's Heimar's o'clock, you know, and a few hours later, so... Oh, what, what about, about Makiv, because it was even worse. I mean, uh, we recently got info. That was conflict intelligence team, the Russian guys who are all expats and are in Ukrainian said that they gathered info about why exactly all that battalion of people were gathered there in the Kiev on the New Year's Eve. Because the political officers of the conscripts decided to, hey, uh, let's make them all watch Putin's speech together. Literally, they were there to watch Putin's speech. That's an interesting angle. That That is, yeah. One of the things that, that we found out, because it's it's so bizarre. Interestingly enough, I've, it's also been weird to, to see all the reaction everywhere. I mean, last time we spoke, we had no idea that the Victory Monument would just go. It is so bizarre and weird that... Oh, you've been here in Latvia, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, the backlash has been, like, everywhere. Well, that was a delicate issue. That people were sort of... I mean, I didn't like the damn thing. I almost used the F word applied to it, but <laughs> you can you, look. This this is Eastern border. You can swear as much as you want. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well. I, yeah, anyway, I was not enamored of the fucking thing, but you know, on the other hand, you know, why people have been tolerating it for thirty years, and, and it only became a focus of political tensions once a year, right? The rest of the time was simply sitting there. You know, I wasn't saying, well, you know, let's go rip it down tomorrow. But when they took it down, fine, great, you know. And also, the reaction from the Russians was no big deal here. Nobody really flipped out about that. Yeah, I was I was really surprised when I only found out that it was, what, four years older than I am? That was only built in 1985? Oh, wow. Which is surprising to me. I, it was apparently built for the 40th anniversary. I always thought it was a thing built somewhere in, like, the 50s, just after the war, you know, to actually represent something. But no, just so silly was built actually to restart patriotism, Soviet mythology of the great fatherland war. And my remark is, I think I wrote it in a, in a commentary in my media platform or something, that it's a monument to the great fatherland war from 1941 to 1945, which raises the question of what was the great fatherland doing invading Finland and Poland in 1939? 
Yeah, that's another thing that uh, I don't really know why exactly, but I do believe that the Winter War was a part of World War II, as it should be. But of course it was. For some reason, they, historians tend to separate these two things, and I don't really understand why. It must be political reason. Well, not Western historians at all don't separate it. Soviet historians, and even to some extent our Russian historians, see that as a blatant distortion of history. If anything, to say that the World War II started on, on the 22nd of June, 1941. Well, people had been at it for two years already. You know, well, we'd had, had the Battle of Britain. We had uh, the Holocaust already getting on in Eastern Europe. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the Russians were sort of sitting back. And while their allies up until, uh, you know, midnight on June 21st, 22nd, uh, were up to all of this. This war myth is, is something that's been pushed to the forefront right now, even more so than the usual, since all this reestablishment of, of various military youth things in Russia. Putin's really trying to kind of, for his audience, trying to turn this into some sort of great patriotic war. But this really isn't working. Russia is a fascist state. I mean, you know, again, you know, taking the word fascist and then saying there are several definitions. I mean, there is... I made an episode where I went through Umberto Eco's all 14 points and looked at how they apply to Russia. And guess what? 14 check marks out of 14, so... I would say 15 out of 14, anyway. <laughs> so you have that. And as to where it was built in the 80s, this was this time when, you know, when, when the war was fading out. 40 years, I mean, people who fought in the war were already in their 60s by then, mid-60s. Now the interesting thing is that anybody who fought in World War II is, is more likely dead than not. And uh, so this whole living memory thing was also fading out. It was also a period when people here in Latvia, who I know, who remember those times, say that, you know, the number of veterans of the war suddenly increased. You know, people signed up for benefits and stuff like that, that uh, thanks to this hoo-ha about the war, you know, it's been 40 years, whatever it was. People, it turned out, who would have been 11 years old and were fighting in Stalingrad, you know, and, and trying to get themselves certified as veterans. So there, there's a lot of this sort of weird fraud surrounding all of this as well. So <sighs> Everything's been weird. I don't know if you've heard of that. So that's why the monument went up. And then, you know, then it became, uh, actually, after Latvia regained its independence, became this kind of symbol of something for the Russians, you know. I wonder, because uh, I know that in the early 90s, we had some patriotic, uh, well, they, they would technically be terrorists, but the guys who were I think it was the Thunder Cross or something, guys who wanted to blow up the monument. Yeah, well, they're sort of... I, I wonder if they're still in prison. Oh, no, they're not. They, they, well, one or two of them never made it to prison because they were terribly bad with explosives. They blew themselves up. I sort of vaguely remember that. I was already living in Riga when this they tried to blow the thing up and, and, and it, it, they failed. They killed one or two of themselves, I don't remember. And then some of them ended up in jail. And that, of course, brought probably unnecessary attention to that thing. And then, of course, it became this symbol for the Russian-speaking population. It was one thing where they could feel good about themselves. Because with the Soviet Union falling apart, with the kind of the supremacy of Russia in the whole game uh, fading away, people had to have something. I sort of could understand that. And then, of course, there were, you know, your hard communists and Russian imperialists for whom this was also a big deal. Although, although it's very interesting when Vladimir Slindermans, neo-Bolshevik, or he's a member of some weird crackpot party who has managed to get himself thrown in jail both in, in Russia and in Latvia. When he showed up one time, I actually had to cover this uh, May 8th thing for, or May 9th rather, for, for, I think, for the Wall Street Journal, and I went to watch this whole thing. Well, Lindermans shows up with the flags of the, uh, of the Donbass or something, and the whole crowd sort of parted to, to sort of stand away from him and let him go put down his flowers, and they sort of went back, you know. So even the local Russians would say, you know, this, this guy's a crackpot, you know. <laughs> Don't have anything to do with him. So the war and everything. When we talk about local crowd here and also in Estonia, as far as I know, yeah, it's been a, sort of like a split in, in the Russian community, and everyone's a bit more radicalized. Yeah, the Russians are now split among those who are Russians and those who are, you know, who were always um, Russian speaking, but were actually, you know, Belarusians, Ukrainians, and all that. We see a huge split and divide there. Yeah, and there were, you know, there are Russians who who understand, you know, that. 
the last place on the planet where they would like to spend the rest of their lives is Russia. Yeah, because- the ones who are living here are born here. Thought out a kind of analogy, and it's not a very pleasant one, about how to view Russians. If you imagine a cinema lens, a cinematic film lens, where you can do everything from close-ups to big wide-angle shots, if you use the close-up view of Russia, Russians, then you can find this nice guy, that nice guy, this weird character, third guy who's or woman who's a crazy, somebody else who's sort of, you know, neither here nor there. Well, then you zoom out to the wide-angle shot, and all of these 140 million individuals that make up the Russian nation, that view, what do you see? You see a monster. You see an absolute monster that is doing all this stuff. Bucha, Izium, mass graves, the whole thing. And then, you know, then you, you don't have terribly much sympathy for anything happening to them, you know, which is kind of weird because there are, as I said, I know, I know Russians who are not crazy. I know Russians who are, who are against the war and all of that. But then, you know, when you take the big picture, it's sort of like, sort of like the nice Germans, you know, that you could have run into in 1938. It is quite weird because we've also seen this whole community of Russians, especially journalists, more liberal-minded, who've moved elsewhere. I've watched them all the time, and and sometimes I get confused because, well, at least one of them, Maxim Katz, who is very prominent, and he does, his English is pretty bad, so his YouTube English subs are quite terrible, but you can read them if you try. But he spends like half of his reporting on explaining why uh, this is not Russia's war, this is Putin's war, we didn't do anything, Putin's actually not that popular in Russia. Like this, they're, they're trying to convey this image of good Russians, and I think that they don't get that nobody cares at this point. We'll start caring when the war is over or something, but right now nobody really cares about whether or not... Look, this this is beginning to look like these newsreels of, of Dachau, you know, when the local population... All these crying, wailing German. Well, we didn't know. We didn't know. You know, how, how, what a terrible thing. Look at these emaciated bodies lying on the ground. Well, you know, you sort of draw your own conclusions after watching these old films of how the Germans were denying their, their involvement in this. You know, and then, and then again, you look at this so-called Russian opposition coming in. I'm not talking about so much about the journalists. That's another issue. You look at all these Russians flooding out of Russia, mainly to Georgia and other places. They're not leaving because they oppose the war or they oppose the regime. They are leaving because the regime is after their ass, right? You're going to get drafted and you're going to end up, uh, you know, being vaporized while listening to, to Putin's speech, you know, which is what happened. You know. Truth to be told, well, one or two of them have left because they oppose the regime, but that's an extreme rarity. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In Latvia, as far as the journalists go or the media that are here, they are now being subjected to this extreme test that if you are not absolutely for having Russia totally fragmented, broken up, and, and sort of you know rolling on the ground in, in sackcloth and ashes, then you are an imperialist, and then you should be shut up, and you should you don't belong here. Leaving who as the only media voice in Russia? Well, the official Russian media, right? You close down TV Rain. Now, TV Rain undeniably fucked up on a number of issues. But now we don't have them broadcasting to at least to the Russian population in Europe. Not that they would be terribly affected by that, but there's a lot of, the, especially sort of the more ultra-nationalist or right-wing or call it what you will, Latvians, who are saying, yeah, get them the fuck out of here. I'm glad they're gone. And let's move on and close down a few other Russian media outlets like Medusa and everything else. Then you are basically saying the only Russian language voices that we want left in our information sphere are the ones from Moscow. That's personally very stupid, I think. All these objections saying, well, they're not anti-imperialist enough and all of that. Uh, but you have to understand that these so-called uh, non-conforming media like TV Rain, like Novaya Gazeta, all of these, they were treading the line in an authoritarian state. So they were not, you know, coming out and saying exactly what some of them may have wanted to say. I mean, I, I think back to uh, the Soviet era, when people in the Latvian emigre community were always looking at certain media or certain personalities to detect a kind of hidden message of dissent. You take the poetry of Visma Belshevitz, you take some of the writings that appeared in literary magazine, Literatura and Marx, the literature and art here, uh, that actually at some point got even reprimanded by the Communist Party. You, know, for its... you take the whole so-called national communist movement here, who also sort of tested the boundaries without breaking them. Now, this is what these media were doing when they were in Russia. And when they're let out here, of course, you look back at what they were saying. They were not saying, you know, tear down the Russian Empire, or let the Buryats set up their own republic or whatever else, you know. But they were definitely against the system as it was. They were definitely against the authoritarian system and they were suffering from it. They come out here and, and that's held against them. Yeah, but they, they also have made massive mistakes. Like they didn't, they were invited to go to the occupation museum. They didn't go. They were, um, of course, decided to just ignore a bunch of our laws and everything. It, it's a complex issue there. But I do agree that, they, well, look, also what they're doing is that they have, like TV Rain, has a massive uh, massive viewership in Russia. And if you want to catch the attention of those Russians who might, you know, believe Putin's propaganda and all that whatnot, you have to start with issues that, you know, they care about. Like, you have to talk about the problems of the mobilized and stuff. What are the, yeah, well, I mean, the soldiers at the front. I mean, I remember... Um the U.S. media, the dissident U.S. media, of course, that was a cold, totally different media situation, referring to bring our boys home, uh, support our boys, bring them home from Vietnam. I mean, that was a slogan, you know. That was an anti-war slogan that people used. I think what we have here is the kind of uh, hardcore nationalist right-wing circles in Latvia that want to uh, simply get rid of everything Russian. They accept no compromises. They accept no explanations or excuses. Just get these guys the fuck out of here. That's what I see as the subtext in a lot of this going on. Also, there's a very prominent, well, however she prominent or not, she is a, a writer and poet and publicist who is running this incredibly hardcore 
almost fanatical campaign to, to literally erase the Russian language totally from the public sphere here. Again, you know, without any kind of uh, possible compromises or, or, or whatever. Although, admittedly, you've had 30 years to change the educational system, and that has been screwed up completely. We've had, like, every year that I remember this issue coming up, it was always two years from now that we would go completely over to all education totally in Latvia. It's sort of, it's like kicking the can down the road for the past 30 years. So, look, you're, uh, I have my own very huge list of grievances uh, towards Latvian politicians. And I do have to admit that our um, right nationalist parties, well, obviously there's a war right next to us, so obviously more conservative uh, parties would gain vote. People tend to vote more conservative in, in crisis situations. Of course, yeah. But that has inspired the very dumbest of them to do stupid things. This is not about that. We'll, we'll make an app on this one. I, I really would like to focus on the on the war here, but it is so so closely tied together. On the other hand, you know, you have to have to also look at what the Ukrainians uh, have done. I mean, I remember being like awake for uh, I think it was seventy-two hours straight when the whole uh, Kharkiv liberation assault happened. It was so bad. I didn't sleep for ridiculous amount of time covering this. Were you there at the time? Sadly, no. I was. I was just back home. Literally, just back home. Oh, okay. I went to Mikolaev down uh, and just before that and. I think it was about that point, but I was literally back from Ukraine two days upon my return from Ukraine. This happened. It was crazy. Yeah, that was that was stunning and 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 weird. What has surprised you the most, really, about this whole situation? Well, other things. The, the whole quickly. The first of all, they sort of left, pulled away from trying to take Kiev. Then, well, what are they going to do next? And then they basically, the whole northeastern front, the Kharkiv front, collapsed. You know, and there were signs that whole Russian command structure supplies, the, the, the whole military command infrastructure, logistics infrastructure was a complete mess. As the Russians would say, it was a complete bardak. You know, that's why the front collapsed. Yeah. And, and you look at all these reports of everyone being under-equipped all the time, and we can see Vranyo uh, happening on every level about how there's a, intelligence is wrong, so you assault fortified positions, and then you get beaten back, but you have to write in your report that, oh, no, we almost took it. We had many casualties. And then all these little lies pile up. They just pile up, like, like uh, in the series Chernobyl, you know, in the last speech. Uh, the lead character said that every lie, every lie incurs a debt to the truth. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. It's, it's very strange. And I think that is also the remnant of the Soviet past because ideologically looking at this, who supports war in Russia? It's mostly the older generation, the people with a nostalgia tooth for, for Soviet Union. Kind of weird because I, I find modern Russian government a bit worse than the Soviets because Soviets, for all their faults, actually tried to, like, sure, they were dictatorship, but they, you know, at least on paper, tried to build communism. And in some smaller instances, they actually did provide some services. They had some ideology that was based on the future, such as it may be. But in current days, Putin's ideology and people who support this war, their ideology seems to be, oh, look back at the old days. We had nice ice cream. West is evil. Like, they don't even have a coherent model or anything. Yeah, well, or basically uh, set up an ideology that shields the uh, kind of robber baron capitalism, or call it what you will, the kleptocracy. They protect the kleptocracy. Yeah, talking about that, I remember that I they actually, after Elon Musk posted his nonsense on Twitter, I made an episode where I actually had to explain a bit of Russian prison laws, the panyatia, and how Russian organized crime works. To make people understand that Putin is not your typical Western leader. He's like a Russian organized crime boss running the whole show. They have their own set of ethics and rules and, and regulations that are internal to them that are totally alien to everyone outside of it, you see. They have totally different value systems. And, and I think, you know, that's been a harsh awakening for many people who thought that maybe maybe this can end with just Putin sitting and just discussing this with Zelensky, although I can't really imagine them ever coming eye to eye and actually talking about anything these days. No, that's not going to happen. That's going to be... And, and I think that there is this misreading of post-Soviet Russia where, you know, the Soviets, uh, the Brezhnevs, and uh, we're the bad guys, and then we have Gorbachev come along, and 
he seemed to sort of take the, the hard edge off the Soviet Union and then it fell apart under him. And then Yeltsin comes along, uh, the old booze hound is out there directing uh, the German army band when he gets off a plane and everybody sort of laughs at that. And then, then we have Putin, who's an ex KGB. And the KGB was a kind of mafia in and of itself, or at least it became uh, closely related to the mafias that were springing up in Russia. And then once you understand that, a lot of what he does seems to make sense, but, but he is not a political leader in the sense that we see political leaders in the West. Yeah. Well, one other thing that that really stunned me was that, at least on Twitter, the NAFO movement appearing, the Shibinu dogs because one of my biggest worries was that um, Russian trolls tend to take over everything. You know, they keep spamming even like everything in Latvia. Uh-huh. But the fact that this whole weird movement that donates money to Ukraine gets the Shibinu avatar and then, you know, fights Russian disinformation with memes, to which I am honored to be a part of because uh, oh, okay. someone, donated, they, someone donated the money in my name because I make this podcast and I've, I've helped Ukraine with gathering donations and everything. So now I have my own Shibinu dog. That's been so effective at countering Russian troll farms that, yeah, there was multiple articles about this thing, uh, like on Washington Post and, and New York Times and, and places. No, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen them. I've seen them. They're uh, certainly, when it comes to kind of uh, very serious, hardcore mafia dictatorship, they cannot stand humor. Or they don't know how to deal with it. They don't like to be laughed at. Yeah, that's that's the thing, because when you make something funny, it's no longer dangerous. And also, Russia has a firm inability to comprehend that people might come together and do something on their own, you know, public initiative and all this stuff. I, I firmly believe that Putin thinks that all democracies everywhere are just a sham as well, it's just that he gets caught or something. I don't think he really understands that it's it's not the case everywhere. Of course, yeah. And, and, and I mean... As I said, this the whole early days of the war. Neighbors went out and said, somebody calls up and says, hey, there's tanks down the road. What are we going to do? They did not wait for orders. They did not see themselves as part of some kind of hierarchy where the great leader calls. They went out and they got Molotov cocktails or they got on their phones. They filmed it. They sent the uh, coordinates of what was going on to the army or to the local uh, National Guard units. And it was a very decentralized uh, kind of people's movement uh, at the initial days of the war. And now Russia is sort of just grabbing people off the street and, and handing them probably some rusty weapon, dressing them in, in, in poorly insulated rags and sending them to a, an improvised barracks that will become a target for high bars. We see like thousands and thousands of Basically, Ukrainian NATO soldiers coming back. They have got fully trained by NATO standards, taught to use NATO weapons, and they're coming back by the thousands now from Germany, from the UK. Uh, soon there'll be some of them be training in the US to use the Patriot rockets. So the, the, this is an incredible backfire for whatever whatever Putin thought he was going to do or whatever Russia thought it was going to do. Uh, first of all, it's got ended up with Sweden and Finland and NATO. And it's ended up basically generating indirectly a NATO army on its own borders, fighting against its 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 military forces. It is all so bizarre. In a way, you know, almost a year has passed in this war, and I feel like I never thought I'd say this, but I think I have acclimatized myself to the war. This war also really just taught me how easy it is for a person to get used to everything. I mean, on my first stay in Ukraine, it was scary because missiles were exploding nearby. But but then after a while, you're like, I can't record until 1 a.m. because at 1 a.m. they're going to explode something so that I can move on. So strange. And also, if you think about it, at least in our region, and I'm, I'm talking about not talking about Ukrainian Ukrainian kids, they're a special case. They've been through a hell. But, but think about, you know, kids in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, all these other places. If you started your high school in 2020, right? So you, you spent basically your first two high school years out of three not even going to school because of COVID. And then on the year where you can go to school, you probably have some kids from Ukraine in your class and there's a massive war. Well, it's been a crazy, it's been the 20s have been a crazy period. A hundred years ago was the roaring 20s and now it's kind of like the crazy 20s. Uh, and it doesn't really seem it's going to stop. I think we're going to have some some terrible scars off of this and we're looking at 
a very weird situation. The scars that we're going to have here in the West is probably going to be more, uh, you know, the claims that there are sort of COVID scars. People did not socialize. People were, you know, isolated. People fell back in their studies and all of that. War is war is a far more serious thing than that. One thing that I'm actually happy that didn't turn out as bad as I predicted, but it could have and it easily should have. It was a very tiny percentage that it didn't happen. Is that uh, they actually made the grain deal? I I was very afraid of this because of how huge the percentage of of the Ukrainian grain is everywhere in the world, and and the grain deal really saved a bunch, a lot of people from starvation. One thing though that will feel impact on the next year is that uh, the fertilizer thing, fertilizer coming from Russia, isn't going to a lot of countries. So we're probably looking at a food crisis still, but now limited to more developing nations who are more reliant on Ukrainian and Russian grain and fertilizer for, for their supplies. But a major food crisis has been avoided, so that's great. Grain deal. I mean, any sort of literate, high school-educated African who could read the newspaper would have figured out that the reason that you know his country relatives or his city relatives or whatever were starving was because Russia started a war against the main supplier of food to Africa, or one of the main suppliers. You know, it was the Russians who would be blamed for that. Punch through any Soviet or Russian propaganda coming at them. And I don't think that make Russia especially popular in the, in the third world, not that it ever was. You know, that, that would have been a bad move on their part. Well, it is It is. It is popular somewhere. Uh, Roscosmos just today announced that they have begun their cooperation with the government of Zimbabwe in their space program. So, um, Oh, that's a great, right, yes. I, 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 can, I can see, you know, Zimbabweans on the moon, you know, next year. Come on, I mean, uh, <laughs> that, that is... I mean, I'm not denigrating. I'm sure that there are, there are people in Zimbabwe who would make excellent, uh, you know, rocket scientists uh, at a theoretical level, but the country does not have the means or infrastructure to uh, to launch, uh, you know, sp- space missions. Yeah, but the, to explain it a bit more, there is a good reason why they signed this program because think about how much money can be stolen from governmental resources if you just uh, declare that it's going to go to Zimbabwe to help them with space infrastructure. Pro tip, the money is never going to go to Zimbabwe at all. Sure, sure, sure. Never mind Zimbabwe. It it turns out that uh, a a hell of a lot of money was spent allegedly to influence Ukraine so that, you know, that on the third day people could change out of their field uniforms into their dress uniforms and march down the avenues of Kiev because all of the Ukrainians would be running into the streets with flowers to greet the Russian tanks. Well, that money was wasted. No propaganda effort, uh, serious propaganda effort ever took place. Not that it would have worked anyway. And all that money was wasted. There was another major corruption scandal there. I have another thing about the, this propaganda issue. I just recently um, found out because some Ukrainians leaked some pre-2014 documents about what Ukraine's previous, what was it, Yushchenko? No, it was Yanukovych. Yanukovych was about to do since uh, he had signed a program about cultural integration of Eastern Ukraine with Russia, basically so that Russia would control their education systems and stuff like that. It was all like in process of happening when the Maidan hit. Russia was about to use a ton of soft power to integrate all those places. So yeah, that, that also disrupted it. It's so weird and scary if you think about it how Russia is the largest country on earth. They have underpopulated Siberia and tons of natural resources whom they can't even access because they don't have the technology, but it's there. It's not like like the only reason why Russia should ever, from any aspect whatsoever, invade anyone is just, just so Putin can keep his mansions. I'm a strategy video gamer, all right? And if you look at Russia's situation, then there is objectively no reason why to do this. And and this this struck me at the beginning of the war, and it has been proven true. Russia is all the bad stuff I told they would. They are suffering now. And it doesn't stop the war. It's just that it it's blows my mind how you can ignore this. Yeah, the thing is that Russia has catastrophically failed to develop its own potential just by staying home and going out there and 
going out to the countryside, the, what, what is called in, in sort of Slavic Latvian slang, the Chuchnya, you know, the, the village where nothing has changed for the past 120 years, uh, putting in electricity, giving people jobs, doing something to uh, end the, the chronic uh, rampant alcoholism out there, uh, you know, giving people some purpose in life. That was not done. That was not done under communism. In fact, the Soviet system uh, actually, uh, up until the, the final years when the, some of the leaders tried to stop the, the, the total degeneration of, of society with, with banning sales of alcohol and other measures like that, the Soviet system actually pushed Russia deeper and deeper into this kind of degenerate underdevelopment. And nobody's doing anything about it now. And as I said, the other war that could break out in Russia, if people got angry enough and were not, you know, too shit-faced to do something about it, uh, would be a class war against uh, of, of the countryside against the Moscow elites or the city elites. That is a very valid point because, again, if you remember at the beginning of mobilization – in Chechnya, Dagestan, those regions in the Caucasus, they had massive protests, and I spoke with people who were actively participating in those protests, got, happened to get some contact. And, and they told me that, at least in the regions outside Moscow, they already live as de facto independent regions, basically, because they have a saying that, that Caucasus is Caucasus, Siberia is Siberia, and Russia is Moscow, because Putin has devolved and destroyed all the institutions so much. And I keep hammering about this on almost every episode, but Putin has destroyed all the traditional institutions that they have no legitimacy. And the only image of Russia, the only image that pops into people's heads when they speak about it in the regions where they live almost destitute poverty is this whole Putin spoke about it on TV, but uh, a lot of people just don't even view themselves as belonging to this Russia. They view themselves as their own ethnicity, their own region, and they do the, everything locally. And and this whole Russia is just associated with Putin and people who just you know take their resources and don't give them anything in return. Which is yeah. Well, that that will filter through at some point because uh, people do have access to internet. People do have access to some way of looking and saying why. First of all, why why do people have nice shiny cars, indoor plumbing, air conditioning, uh, movie theaters, and all that stuff in Moscow and not here out in the middle of nowhere? In the West, we see that there are people in farming districts in the U.S. or Canada in the prairies who are are very well off, who have uh, mobile internet, uh, who have uh, flat screen TVs, who have uh, robot uh, tractors out there. Uh, and here we are, you know, working with a with a with a hoe and a shovel, and not making any money as farmers. People are going to realize that at some point and say, "We're going to, you know, storm the, the the big cities and ask for ask for our share of all of this." At this point, by the way, if a year ago I could try and predict the future better than right now, if if you'd ask me what's going to happen. In the next year, I can give you only very vague statements about the possibilities. It's just right now we're in a weird, weird position where all of this is changing and, and it's very hard to predict the future. One thing, though, that I think should happen, by the way, is uh, I, I think we should really, after this, reevaluate how the world works. And by that, I mean we should look at the United Nations and maybe just uh, scrap that idea and build something new instead. Because out of all the weird things that we've seen is how utterly devastatingly useless the United Nations are. It's just that they are a massive bureaucracy that is... Like, they're a laughingstock, basically. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could partly see that. I mean, there are a lot of other things that they do, you know, like like uh, environmental stuff and setting sort of standards. But certainly the United Nations had, had played its true role. It would have thrown Russia out, you know, in March of last year, if not earlier. And it would have uh, demanded that peacekeeping troops be sent in to, say, uh, protect the nuclear facilities and uh, the, the ones that are now occupied by, by Russians. But the UN is like, uh, is like uh, somebody said, uh, it's like an umbrella that you fold up when it starts to rain. You just take it down. It's not there anymore. Quite weird in all the situations. By the way, nuclear stuff, when you mention this, that is the only business that hasn't hit any lists. And uh, that's because... Well, apparently, there are only two countries in the world that actually have corporations that help other nations build nuclear power plants and then upkeep them. One of them is Russia, the other one is France. 
So the, the Russian projects is, is these deals are like for 20 years or something. Uh, Rosatom isn't, isn't in any sanctions list whatsoever. Just because if they would and this would stop, you know, functioning, then we would probably get some nuclear meltdown somewhere. At least that hasn't been touched and probably won't. I think Rosatom has, has one of the, the best known nuclear meltdowns in history on its account, right? Yeah, but they, they also kind of figured this one up. Uh, no, I mean, there are others. So General Electric in the U.S., there are, there are other companies that are capable of building nuclear reactors. And as far as maintenance, I mean, you could take it over. You could say, okay, Rosatom, you're, get out of here. Give us your documentation. And we'll keep this place from, you know, cooking off uh, for, for the next couple of years and fix it up, you know, so. Yeah, but I think it's not a good thing since we've, we have learned that relying on Russia's oil and gas is pretty terrible. So maybe there's a slight chance that people will, I don't know, get out of their heads this bubble about Chernobyl and this fear-mongering about it and understand that nuclear power has become much safer and much clearer than it used to be and that... Well, yeah, I would agree with that. That's another story. But that's the Chernobyl accident has to be, again, framed in terms of the Russian bardak and not in terms of the nuclear industry as a whole, although there have been, you know, a number of interesting things that have happened there as well. But You know, everything here is just a confusing mess. But yeah, this has been almost an hour, but uh, I'd like to mention that uh, during this whole process, I still managed to go to the United States for a bit. And you grew up in Boston, if I recall, right? Right, yeah. Went there once again and um, walked the complete Freedom Trail, the big one, once again. Didn't manage to go up the monument, though, but uh, very much enjoyed Boston oysters. And then when I returned, I found out that um, they're not trying to popularize oysters here in Latvia a bit more. You can buy them in Stockman, but they totally don't taste like anything you could get in the East Coast United States, which is weird, but just a side note. Well, yeah, I was sad to say when I was just in Boston in October, uh, I had to meet a mutual friend of someone here in Latvia, actually another uh, an American guy, and, and he took me to what he said was one of the best seafood restaurants in Somerville, Cambridge. It's a suburb of it's uh, just outside Somerville and Cambridge are connected. Uh, and I forgot that I had uh, I had a, a severe seafood allergy to clams, and I ate some of them, and I made it to my my brother's house. Before the symptoms kicked in, so oh, wow. so much for Boston and seafood. But I'll know to, to avoid it. But there's a lot of you know, it's it's one of the nicest cities that, that I know in the world. It's compact. I've never actually walked the whole Freedom Trail. Uh, I have been out to uh, Lexington, where the whole you know first shots of the American Revolution were fired, and they were fired not so much out of patriotism, but because the Brits arrived and they woke up. The local militia who had been drinking all night and sort of shook them out of a hangover morning. And, of course, people were pissed off, and that's why they started shooting at each other. Okay, but but round everything up, I, I just said it's hard to predict anything, and, and this is difficult. But um, if you would have any comments on what do you think is likely to happen in this year, and do you think war will end in this year, what are your... Uh, I guess best educated guesses about what's going to happen in this year concerning the war and everything. I think the war will end. There will be at some point there will be a surge both of uh, uh, Western uh, heavy military equipment flowing into Ukraine and of basically, as I said, the Ukrainian army basically becoming a, a NATO trained, NATO equipped army and one of the most powerful armies in Europe. And I think that when the war ends, uh, Ukraine will become one of the most powerful uh, military uh, forces in NATO when and if it joins NATO. And I think it will join NATO. I think that's almost inevitable. As, as with all arming Ukraine and training it and, and giving it weapons, it'll be so strong militarily that at one point I think NATO will just ask Ukraine to join because it would make no sense if they wouldn't. Because if they're out of NATO... That's one thing. And the other thing is that, that instead of going to uh, firing uh, areas in Germany or, or training in the U.S., that NATO soldiers will be trained by Ukrainians in the future. Oh, yes, definitely. They have. They now have an, an excellent experience in trench warfare and, and in armored vehicle fighting and everything. It's crazy. They are fighting uh, the future war with the drones with the use of instant telecommunications to, to uh, coordinate fire on the enemy 
and with deception, and they are they're going to be the go-to country for learning how to fight the Russians, assuming we may still have to fight the Russians at some point if they don't learn. And sadly, sadly, I don't think Russians learn very easily. Yeah, about that part, I don't know. I know that uh, I'll definitely be keeping an eye out on Belarus because uh, at this point, when the troubles start happening there and Lukashenko is about to get thrown out, well, uh, you know, after so many times in Ukraine, I, I guess I have my credentials that I just should go there or something. If you saw the massive protests and the massive repression after the election in 2020, then it's pretty clear that once uh, the the cork pops out in, in Belarus... The fight will be over to who, who gets to tear Lukashenko's carcass apart and throw it to the dogs, you know, and whose dogs get a piece of it, you know. It's not going to be a big internal war. And, and the lampposts of, of Minsk will be filled with, with these thugs who are beating up people in 2020. Oh, well, look, 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 Putin at least has a chance, a small chance, a very tiny one, about 5-6% to get to Hague, okay? He has a slight chance to actually sit in that chair as an accused of war crimes. Lukashenko has no such chance after what he did in 2020. Lukashenko will be torn up in, in, in pieces. Yeah, although, you know, the opposition there tried to present itself as being reasonably civilized and, and not sort of into, into anger, as, as was the case against Ceausescu and as was the case against Mussolini, you know, and they sort of dragged into this... Yeah, but the thing in these cases is that it might not be uh, the opposition who does it. It might be some people who were involved in the, you know, the oppressive regime, the Shilaviki, you know, the power structures. Sure. Yeah, as was the case, Ceausescu's old generals ended up shooting him. Because so. that's the best way how to not get shot yourself and not get into trouble and all that whatnot. I mean, uh, Abramovich, for all the fact that he had to sell Chelsea, right? He still is trying to get himself portrayed in a good light. I mean, some of these rich people, you know, have um, put themselves in a position where they understand that it's way beneficial for them to, you know, pick, pick the winning side. On the other hand, if we look at all the people who have accidentally fallen out of a window in Russia recently, <laughs> this is a weird time we live in. Way more interesting than last year in weird. Yes, it is. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So well, we'll see. As I said, I think the war will end this year. I think there will be some really heavy action in Russia internally. As I said, Belarus will probably be uh, different. There will be less Lukashenkos around, uh, including the big man and maybe some of his family who will end up uh, swinging from a rope along with him. And uh, we may see a brighter uh, sort of set of circumstances if we speak a year from now. Well, we definitely will. I mean, uh, at this point, you brought this on. <laughs> no, no we, we have to do this. And uh, I actually want to talk to you maybe more recently, too, about the Latvian stuff that we didn't mention. Like, uh, we have politicians, dear listeners, uh, who have uh, decided to try to impose in Parliament stricter rules for EU citizens working in Latvia. Because they are just, you know, politicians are just awful sometimes. But it is what it is. Anyway, thank you. On that account, I, I actually called up Dobrava and he said that he had been misunderstood. But that's another story. Thank God, because that was that was so ridiculously stupid that, yeah. Okay, thank you for, for this conversation, Yuris. And uh, I hope you have a good evening. And uh, your son makes movies. Can his movie, The Neon Spring, be viewed somewhere outside of Latvia? And how can people do that? It's on, uh, I think it's on Vimeo. It's on some paid uh, streaming sites. And it's been in film festivals. And it's being marketed by Magnolia Pictures of the U.S. So we'll see where they sell them. I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up on Netflix. Although I talked to Matis, he, he's not, not aware of any such thing. So, Well, please do check out Neon Spring. And, uh, well, I hope you all have a good weekend and all that. We're back to work. You too. Talk to you later then. Talk to you again at some point in the next coming exciting year. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.